Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media. So be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now enjoy the message. We're in a new series. We're starting it this weekend from the book of James. Now, James was the half-brother of Jesus. And what's interesting is when you look at James and you study his life, uh, James was not convinced that Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection. It's interesting. In fact, the Bible says the brothers of Jesus in John 5 did not believe he was the Messiah. So for all of Jesus' earthly ministry, for the time that James knew him as he ministered, he was not a believer. He was not a follower of Jesus. He was skeptical and he was cynical, not unlike a lot of people that I know who've been raised around religion or they've been raised around church or they've been raised around church people. uh, They're a little cynical. They don't buy in. They don't obviously all believe. And I don't think, based on what I know about Jesus, I don't think it was because that James had seen inconsistency in the life of Jesus. The Bible says concerning Jesus, he did no sin and he knew no sin. And I think to even validate the biblical record as to the um, purity of the life that Jesus lived, you look at Pilate at the time of the crucifixion and Pilate sent out the finest investigators of the then known day to try to find anything that Jesus had done wrong. They probably went back and talked to his teachers and to those who went to school with him. Uh, We know he was probably a carpenter by trade, so they went back to the people who he did business with. He went back and talked to his neighbors. I mean, think about it. It would be like the FBI doing a deep dive into your life and into mine, talking to everyone who has ever known us or interacted with us at any level whatsoever. And once they brought the report back to Pilate, Pilate gave the report to his accusers and said, I'm sorry, I find no fault in him. Now, let me tell you something. That could not be said of any of us. Think about it. If they did a deep dive on your life and mine, how long would it take them to find something wrong with any of us? Maybe five minutes or less? Talk to my wife, right? (laughs) Talk to the kids? I'm just suggesting to you that Jesus was an unusual one in that he who uh, had no sin, who knew no sin, he did no sin. There was never a thought he should not have had, never a word he should not have spoken, never a deed that he should not have done. So my point I'm making when I tell you that is James did not see inconsistency in Jesus. I think the inconsistency he saw was in those who followed Jesus, those who claimed to know him and those who claimed to experience his life change. And I think when James saw the hypocrisy uh, the duplicitous, the, the, um, the, 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 the way in which they conducted themselves where they said one thing and they did another, James wasn't buying in. He, he didn't see the authenticity of their faith. And it's like someone had once said, um, the greatest argument for Christianity is a Christian and the greatest argument against Christianity is a Christian. Someone said that Mahatma Gandhi said something to the effect that I might have become a Christian if I had ever actually seen one. Uh, Jesus, in fact, said in John 13, 35, he said, by this shall 
all men know you are my disciples. There's a way whereby the authenticity of your faith can be seen. And he said it's this way. He said that you have love one for another. That you love each other, you're forgiving of one another, you're accepting of one another, you're not judgmental of each other. He said when you begin to live your faith out in that way and you love each other like that, he said that is proof positive of life change. All men will know you are my disciples. So James had seen all of the inconsistencies and he had watched all the hypocrisy of the people who followed after Jesus and he just he wasn't convinced until you get to the resurrection because James had probably seen the crucifixion and people didn't survive crucifixions. Romans were good at crucifixion. In fact, we have a word to describe pain that is so difficult to describe, we call it excruciating. Well, it's excrucify, it's a word of the cross. It means to come out of the cross. It means there was no pain like the pain one experienced when they hung on the cross. And like I said, Romans were good at crucifixion. You didn't survive crucifixion. I mean, there's liberal theologians that believe that Jesus sort of lapsed into a comatose state and he was revived and resuscitated in a cool tomb, and that's just not so because the Romans would never allow anyone to survive a crucifixion. And so I'm just suggesting to your heart that James would have witnessed Jesus dying on the cross, and even the death of Jesus on the cross didn't convince him. It was the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus appears to them and he thinking, wow, this, this, is, this is something that no one could do in their own strength and this is something that no one could have do, done in and of themselves, he, he must be from God. And so now you have the conversion of James and so I say that to lay the groundwork to tell you that James writes this very hard hitting book and he basically says, if your faith is real, it will be reflected in how you treat other people. If your faith is real, it'll be reflected in how you live your life. My dad's church, when I was in Sunday school, they used to sing this little song, and I, I won't sing it, I won't stampede the herd, but it, it went like this. If you're saved and you know it, you remember how that goes? Then your what? Your life will surely show it. In other words, if you're genuinely following after Jesus and you say what you believe on Sunday, it will change the way you live on Monday. And so James writes to say, basically, show me your faith by how you live your life, by your works. Now, some people think that James contradicted what the apostle Paul had written. Paul says that we are saved by faith apart from works, it has nothing to do with our works. And so when James starts talking about faith and works, somebody says, well, it looks like James is contradicting what Paul wrote. Well, Paul wrote half of the New Testament. And here is the distinction and the difference between what the two people are saying, and this is the, the way in which they contrast and complement one another. Paul is saying, I'll show you my faith apart from my works. James is saying, okay, Paul, but I will then show you my faith by my works. In other words, here is the compliment. The compliment is, we're not saved by faith and works. We are saved by a faith that will work. You see the difference? In other words, once I've experienced Jesus, I, it had nothing to do with my works, but my works proves the fact that I have experienced Jesus. James warns in James 2 of a dead faith. He said faith without works is, is dead. It's lifeless, it's useless, it's not life-giving. 
There's no proof of a, of, of a presence of God if it's not somehow reflected in the way we live our lives. When Paul was writing about salvation, he said, for by grace, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul said, nobody's gonna be strutting around in heaven talking about what they did to get here. <laughs> and we would if we could. We, yeah, pretty good, I'm in heaven, right? He said, it's apart from works. But verse 10 is probably the least frequently quoted verse in that chapter. Right after he says that, he says, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works and we should maintain the good work. So works follow salvation, they don't precede it. In other words, once I, become a, I became a Christ follower, then that faith should be reflected in my life. And guys, that's the essence of the series. We wanna talk about a pure faith, a faith that actually can be seen, a faith that can be tested, a, a faith that can be measured, a, a faith that can be seen, a faith that can be known. We wanna talk about a, a pure faith. And I contend as I kind of begin the new series today by saying that our faith never shines brighter than it does when we go through the dark experiences of life. So I wanna to talk to you a little while about these faith, the faith that we have for the trials of life. The trials of life. Anybody can have faith when the bills are paid and everything's good in the marriage and the relationships are great, kids are good, you're healthy, everything's going good on the career. It, it doesn't take a lot of faith to rejoice and to be great under those circumstances. But the strength of your faith is seen in the moments in which that faith becomes tested. And you really don't know how strong you are till you get tested. We come to these big old holy huddles on Sunday morning and we worship and we read God's word and we fellowship and we encourage one another and we share Jesus with those who are here and those watching online, and we should. But this is a safe environment. Your faith is probably not going to be tested in this circumstance, but guys, when we break out of this holy huddle and we go out into the real world and we begin to execute and we begin to live life, that's where the faith gets tested. So James is writing to people living in the real world. When you read Acts chapter eight and you read the first three verses, you understand the Christ followers of his day were being persecuted. After the resurrection, there was a claim going through the Christian community that Jesus was, had been raised from the dead. And that was repulsive to the Romans, remember? They didn't like to think that anyone they crucified could live again. And not only that, they surely didn't want to think that the one that they had crucified was not only living, but he was leading a movement. A movement that said the most significant thing in your life is a relationship with Jesus more than Caesar. Remember, the Romans had a, a cardinal rule that there could be no one higher than Caesar and you could not swear an allegiance to anyone above Caesar. And, and so whenever these Christ followers said, no, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, that was offensive and they went about trying to kill them. And man, you have the church as it's now being persecuted. You have what is called the diaspora, the scattering, the dispersing of the church. And so when you get to James 1, and if you have a Bible, look there with me. In James 1, James is writing to these Christians, these Christ followers who are being persecuted for their faith. And understand, man, when they got persecuted for their faith, that means for many of them, if they were Jewish, that means they would be desynagogued. They would be put outside the synagogue, excommunicated. 
And if you had been excommunicated, put outside the synagogue, you could not buy, sell, or trade with other Jewish people. You'd lose your job. You'd lose your way to make a living for your family. You would lose um, the ability to, you know, to participate in commerce. And so it was a, a desperate time. That's why they helped one another. According to Acts 4, they shared with one another because of this uh, persecution they were going through. So James is writing to them, and here's what he says. He's a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to these 12 tribes which are now, here it is, scattered. Greetings. My brethren, count it all joy. What? Count it joy? <laughs> you, you acknowledge that we're scattered, right, James? You know that we're being persecuted, but you're saying count it all joy when, not if, when you fall into various trials. Here's what you can know. Know that the testing of your faith is gonna result in something. You're not going through what you're going through for no reason. God does not allow his kids to go through a trial for, for no purpose at all knowing that what you're going through will produce something and it's going to produce patience. So let patience have its perfect work. In other words, don't interrupt the process. <laughs> don't quit in the middle of the process. Roll with it, baby. <laughs> let, that's loosely translated there, but that's the idea. Just let patience have its work. God has a purpose for it. Go with it um, so that ultimately you may be perfect, fully mature, and complete, lacking nothing. And in the process, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. He'll give you wisdom liberally without reproach. It will be given. But ask in faith, not doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that one suppose they will receive anything for the Lord. He is double-minded then and unstable in all of his ways. Now, let me break this apart for you a little bit before we go home. And tell you the power of your faith and what your faith can do in and through your life, particularly when you're going through a trial. First of all, faith has the power to shape your perspective, your perspective. A lot of what we go through in life is not as significant as how we go through it. A lot of the things you and I experience in life is not as significant as how I see it or perceive it. My perception of the thing that I'm going through really shapes how I go through it. And James is saying, I acknowledge the fact you're scattered. I acknowledge the fact you're being persecuted. I get that, but you need to change your perspective and count it. Here's the perspective. Count it all joy. I mean, understand God has a purpose and has a reason. And he said, here's when you count it joy. Here's when your perspective needs to change. When, again, not if, when you go into various problems, into. Uh, the word various is an interesting word. We get our word polka dot from that Greek word. It means shapes, different shapes and sizes, big ones and little ones and, and challenging ones and, and, and not so challenging ones. When you're going through these various trials, notice it now. He said, as you go into those trials, count it joy. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend to count it joy when I come out of those trials. <laughs> I tend to say, thank God that's over with. Thank God we've gotten through that. Thank God the storm clouds have cleared and the sun is shining again in my life and business and relationships. And that's when we, but James says, you're missing the point. If you want your faith to be reflected in the lives of skeptical people, James is saying, like I was, then you got to contrast, swim against the uh, stream and go against the grain. And when you contrast 
the rest of the skeptical world, you'll contrast them by them seeing you rejoicing on your way into a problem instead of coming out. So it's the contrast. It's the perspective, and your faith is what can give you that perspective. Faith is that hope that I have in God that he has a reason for it, that he's working in the midst of it, that God is doing things in and through my life for a reason. And James kind of identifies the two ways in which God works in our life. On one hand, he says, you're gonna go through trials. And on the other hand, he said, you're going to have temptations. Trials and temptations. It's a tandem that works in everybody's life. I don't care how spiritual you are or aren't. You will not attain a place where you do not deal with those two issues. Every day of your life, a trial and a temptation. Now, James also said God does not tempt and he doesn't send the temptation in your life and God cannot be tempted. But God will either cause the trial to come into your life or God will permit the trial to come into your life. Well, how do you distinguish between the two? Because I have to identify it if I'm going to change my perspective on it. Well, first of all, a trial is something that God either causes or allows. Another word for trial might be test. And the purpose of the trial, the purpose of the test, is to evaluate your readiness for promotion. We have a lot of educators in our church and every one of them will tell you that when they give a test, they can tell immediately if their classroom has grasped the materials that, they've being, that they're being taught. And when all of the class fails and the teacher goes back and says, I can't move to the next level of material till they get what they've just been taught because one thing builds on the next thing. Even in scripture, the Bible says you understand the Bible line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. So one thing in your faith builds on the next thing in your faith. You remember before David faced Goliath, he killed a lion and a bear. God will prepare you for the challenges ahead. I told you last weekend about Elijah. Elijah had to go to Kareth, and then he had to go to Zarephath before he had a victory on Mount Carmel. Steps, layers, levels. And so I'm suggesting that what happens when the test comes into our life, God is evaluating our readiness for promotion. If you can't handle the pressure and stress of your life at this level, then God will not put more on you than you can bear. I'm convinced that some of us whine ourselves out of blessings. And we just simply, you know, cry to God and God says, okay, I had more for you, but if that's the level you want to live on, I'm not going to put, so I'm, I'm okay, we'll stay right there. You're going to be a fifth grader all your life. And you can stay right there. So tests are things that evaluate our readiness for promotion. Trials, God sends them. Now listen, another little important point, and that is God does not send the trial so that he will know how we're doing. Remember, he's sovereign, meaning he knows everything. He sends the trial or he allows the trial, here it is, so that we know how we're doing. You can't fix something in your life you don't know is broken. I mean, whether you're going to go into fitness, weight loss, I mean, everything begins with a measurement, you, you have to know accurately where you are, so you can have a baseline to tell, am I progressing, regressing, how am I doing? And so what happens is the test and that comes, comes into our life that stretches our faith so we realize, wow, I'm not as strong as I thought I was in that area of my life. I, I got to work on this. Man, my, my you know, my... Um, 
uh, my ability to deal with conflict isn't my conflict resolution skill. I gotta, I gotta hone in on those conflict resolution skills, man. I go immediately to the lowest denominator, uh, denominator which is anger. I gotta work on that. I, I, I gotta work on my relationship skills. I, I gotta work on my money management skills. I'm lacking in that. I mean, every one of us go through trials and they identify areas of our life that need improvement. That's the purpose of the trial. So I'm saying there's a positive effect if we can wrap our minds around it so that when the trial begins, we say, thank you, Lord, you're about to teach me something through the experience. So there's the trial, the test. Well, if that's what that is, where I can see that, then what is a temptation? Well, a temptation is then, by definition, a solicitation to do anything that would go against God's word or his will for our life, anything. Anything that goes against God's best for our life or violates his word is a temptation. And by the way, there's no sin in being tempted. It's what you do with the temptation. It's not the bait that gets the fish in the boat. It's the bite. <laughs> and so you're going to be tempted. We're all going to be tempted. As long as there's a pulse, you're going to be tempted. So I'm saying you're going to deal with these realities every day of your life. It's how we respond. And he was saying the best response is to count it joy because God's about to reveal something in your life or he's going to protect you from something else in your life. Test, temptation. And here's a beautiful thought under that under that banner of our perspective, he also says concerning that, that in the midst of this, he's saying God's going to do something. In the midst of this, he's going to teach you something, which is my next thought. Faith will strengthen our patience. That's what God's up to. When I change my perspective, and I know this is a trial or this is a test, I'm gonna give him praise because here's what he's doing. Look at it again in verse four. Let patience have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete. But back up into verse three. Knowing that the testing of your faith will produce patience. So you're, you're understanding that your faith not only changes perspective, but your faith can strengthen your patience. Now, what is patience? Patience could be defined in Scripture as perseverance. It's your ability not to quit. Don't give up. Don't give out. I mean, just, just, just don't quit. I mean, you know, just hang in there. Just say, God, by the grace of God, I just need to get through the day. Help, help me get through this day. Just take it a day at a time, a step at a time. It's perseverance. And what happens when you're faced with a trial or you're faced with a test, then there is a temptation, here's that word again, the temptation just to quit. Just to run from the problem or run from the person, and that, that's a temptation. And God, on the other hand, is allowing the temptation, and sometimes God can work in the same, same circumstance while the devil's tempting you. God can be testing you to show you areas of your life that you could work on that you could strengthen. But the inevitable result of it, according to what James is saying here, is your patience is going to be strengthened. Your ability not to quit is going to be strengthened. So perseverance is one of the ways you would define patience. Here, here's another way you define it, endurance. Endurance. Uh, the, the idea of endurance is the ability to hold up under something. One of the things that I've shared with you before is there's a principle in prayer that God does one of two things with the burden you carry today. God will either supernaturally take the burden off of you, and sometimes he does that. I've seen God work out financial stress. I've seen him work out relational issues. I've seen him touch and heal. I mean, God, there's nothing he cannot do. We serve a miracle 
uh, working God. He is the way maker, <laughs> right? There's nothing he can't do. We know that. And sometimes when you pray, it is the will of God to lift that burden from you. However, now this is where the faith gets stretched. Sometimes he doesn't lift it off of you. Instead, he gives you the strength to carry it. And God sometimes leaves his heaviest burdens on his strongest kids. So sometimes, guys, when God doesn't answer the prayers that we pray in the way that we pray that he would, it's not that he's apathetic, it's not that he doesn't love us, it's not that he doesn't care, it's that he's developing something in our life that we will not get any other way. The Bible says tribulation brings about patience. That's why I counsel people all the time, listen, don't pray for patience. For the love of God, don't pray for patience. Now, I know it's a terrible thing you hear a pastor say, don't pray, but let me explain what I meant by that. You might as well pray for trouble. That's the only way you're going to get patience. Tribulation brings patience. Say, God, you know, we're getting along pretty good in the marriage. Could you create some stress for us today? Maybe on the way home. Maybe a good old argument. Yeah, man, we hadn't had one of those in a while. Let's have a little debate with a mate. Or the kids are doing pretty good. Man, man, let one of those boogers twist off a little bit. God, can we have a little of that going on in the house? Man, the business is good. Maybe a financial reverse, huh? How about that one? Wow, let's pray about all that. Well, that's what you're inviting into your life when you pray for patience because God is saying, okay, you acknowledge the fact you need to endure, you need to persevere. Well, the only way you're gonna get that is through some resistance training. I might put some weight on you to strengthen you in that area. So here it comes. Don't blame me, you prayed for this. And so I'm just suggesting that sometimes things come into our life that we don't pray for. The trials and the temptations, none of us prayed for that, but they're here anyway. So I'm saying if I can change my perspective to the place that I realize God is allowing this or he's caused this to happen so he can develop something in me that would not be there without this. Think about it this way. Somebody needs the strength you have. Somebody needs to learn from the life experiences that you've gone through. Who better to help someone in your circle uh, who's going through a divorce than someone who's been through one? Who better to help someone who's lost a loved one and they're facing that than someone who's experienced that? There's something about that voice of experience. In fact, the, Ezekiel said one of the most powerful things he said concerning his ministry, he said, listen to this, he said, I have sat where they sit. I've been there. I've gone through what they're going through. I mean, in, in teaching and preaching, there can be a disconnect where pastors sometimes can pontificate and preach down and talk down to the people. Instead of saying we, they say you. Instead of saying we all or we should, they say you should. And, all. and there, there can be a disconnect. And the reality is, if you're going to be effective, you have to realize you're made of the same stuff everybody else is made of. You're susceptible to the same things that they all are. You're tempted, and you go through the test like everybody else goes through, and you have to come up and say, if God allows it, it's because he's doing something in me to make me more effective at helping someone else. You see, the only reason God left you and I on this earth after we became a Christ follower was to be his hands and his feet to love as he loves. That's why there's just no benefit when a Christian becomes critical and judgmental of other Christians. 
I don't know what happens once a person, well, I read a stat that says within two years after a person makes a significant decision to follow after Christ, they have virtually zero relationships with people who don't know Jesus. That's a travesty. Everyone who knows Jesus ought to be building redemptive relationships to people who do not know Jesus. But instead, the tendency is to isolate and insulate, and sadly, it doesn't stop there. And some of you have been around ministries like this. They become critical of other people. They should put a sign out in front of the church that says, no shoes, no shirt, no sinners. Us four, no more, shut the door. I, I, I don't, that's all I got. But the point is, all of a sudden, you, you forget, as Isaiah said, the rock he dug us out of, the pit he found us in. I'm not excusing, you know, failure in anyone's life. I'm just saying, I'm not to judge. But people tend to do that. They're the hardest on the people who are into things they're not into. Have you noticed how that works? <laughs> if somebody's sinning differently than you, you tend to be more critical of them. When somebody is sinning exactly as you, you say, you know, we need to be graceful and cut them some slack. Everybody has struggles. See how that works. What's my point? My point is we don't want to move away from the fact that God has left us here on this earth to reach people who do not yet know Jesus. And sometimes, listen, we reach them through our brokenness. Someone said, all sharing your faith is is one beggar telling another beggar where they found bread. Jesus did this for me. I'm sure he can do this for you. And what he's doing in the trials and the tests of life, guys, and the temptations of life is he's strengthening us. He's preparing us for life at the next level to minister more effectively to the people who do not yet know him. Let me give you this last thought. Faith shapes our perspective. Our faith can strengthen our patience. Lastly, faith can sustain our purpose. Faith will keep you in the game. It sustains our purpose. I've shared the verse with you, and it's really been very meaningful to me since Cindy's been in heaven. It's that Ecclesiastes verse. To everything there is a season. Life is made up of seasons. And man, these seasons go by so fast, don't they? Gosh, I turned around and looked in the mirror and said, that's my dad looking back at me. That's scary. Who's that old joker in that mirror? I mean, all of a sudden you start realizing, man, how fast life goes by. It's seasonal. And in the seasons, there's good things and bad things and happy things and sad things. I mean, a farmer would tell you that there's seasons of plowing and there's seasons of planting and there's seasons of watering. And by the way, there's seasons of fertilizing. And that comes into everybody's life. Some of you getting fertilized today. And then there's seasons of reaping. But reaping is just one season. It's not every season. It's just one. And it's just one of the others. So, I, so Solomon said life is seasonal. And then he said to everything there's a season. And there's, here's the other point I wanted to make from that. Ecclesiastes 3 verse. He said there's a time to every purpose under heaven meaning that our time on earth is connected to our purpose. And as long as we have purpose, God gives us time. I did a funeral for one of our members and one of our faithful uh, volunteers here yesterday. Um, his wife, Teresa um, Leo, uh, passed away, her husband, and did his memorial service. And what I know about a 66-year-old man, not, not old at all. That's younger all the time, folks. Tell me, tell me about it. Is Leo was here as long as his purpose was here. You know what? God loves you so much and he loves me so much. He will not let us stay on this earth one moment past our purpose. That's what I had to get to with Cindy. 
to realize my purpose for my wife was not over, but God's was for her here on this earth. And he loved her too much, and conversely, he loves us too much to leave them here one moment past their purpose. But you know one of the things that will keep us from fulfilling purpose is, is when we quit. Paul said, you did run well. Who did hinder you? Sometimes it's not a who, it's a what. <laughs> well, I went through this. I was in the game and I was working hard and I was, you know, at church and all. And then this happened to my life and it made no sense and it took me off the field. My faith got stretched and, and all of a sudden I, I couldn't handle it. And I walked off the field. There'll be a football game a little later today. And you'll see some people that'll get hurt in the game. And listen, you can't play the game without getting hurt. Remember what Paul said? He said, when you fall, I mean, what James said, when you fall, he didn't say if, he said when. And the more you engage in life and the more you engage in ministry and the more you engage in your purpose, the more apt you are to be hurt. And sometimes you get hurt, you have to come off the field. We have a lot of people in our church that are in rehab. They got hurt somewhere else. They got hurt doing something else. And now they're in the church. They're not ready to serve yet. They need to be ministered to and loved on. And they, 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 they need to, they're, they're in spiritual ICU. And when they're in spiritual ICU, they, they need some time. And they need, need some attention. And they need some affirmation. And they need some love. And sometimes when you go off the field, sometimes you go off the field because you need to go in the tent. They need to evaluate you and assess you. And the purpose of, of you going to the sideline is, listen, so you can get back out in the game. You're, you're needed. You're valuable. But sometimes we go through life, and it's not necessarily uh, the injury that takes us out of the game. Sometimes it's frustration. We go all Antonio Brown on God. <laughs> Pads go off. I am done, <laughs> Right? I've had it, man. Not only do the pads come off, the jersey goes off and bye-bye. <laughs> not only am I not going to the bench, I ain't going to the stands. I ain't even going to stay in the stadium. I've ministered to a lot of Antonio Browns. A lot of people that have gone through something, and man, the minute that thing hit them, the pads came off, the jersey came off. They didn't go to the bench. Google that, guys, if you're not a sports fan. This is a real thing I'm telling you about. They didn't even go up in the stands. They left the stadium. They smiled and said, bye-bye. We have thousands of people that call this church their church home, and there's a large percentage of those people who aren't here because of some experience in life, where the jersey came off, the pads came off. They didn't go to the bench or the stands. They left the stadium and said, bye-bye. This is not what I signed up for. This isn't what I thought faith was going to do. I didn't know God was going to allow this into my life. And I can tell you from experience, and I can tell you this morning, that the thing that will keep you on the field and the thing that will keep you in the game is your faith. It's okay to get mad at God. Did you know he can take it? Did you know there's a psalm where he says, David said, he has put my feet in a large room. Let me tell you how I interpret that. God cuts you slack. Did you know he's big enough for you to get mad at him? He's big enough for you to tell him what you think? I told somebody, I said, do you ever pray to mad prayer? They were telling me about what they're going. They said, would you have told that to God? You've told me. I can't help you other than to say I'll pray for you. I mean, have you told the one that actually could, oh, I couldn't pray for that prayer. I said, as though he doesn't know. 
I'm pretty sure he knows you've twisted off on him. You're good to pray. Sometimes you need to fire off an angry prayer, a bitter prayer, a hurt prayer. Because you know what? Your heavenly father loves you. He's put your feet in a large room. He'll cut you some slack. He'll give you some space to be mad. His apostles got mad. Hey, Simon, I mean, Simon Peter. John 21, you know what he said? I'm going fishing. Now, what that meant was, I'm going back to doing what I did before I met Jesus. He was a professional fisherman by trade. What he said is, I'm done. Jersey's off, the pads are off, bye-bye. <laughs> and you know what Jesus did? Read John 21. He came to where he was. And let me tell you what he didn't do. He didn't say, you moron. After all I've done for you, you know I just went to the cross for you? And you had the audacity to go quit on me because all this just went wrong in your life? He didn't do that. You know what he did? Read John 21. He set him down because he knew he was tired. He gave him something to eat because he knew he was hungry. And he said, son, the problem is there's a relationship here, a fellowship here that's lacking. Do you love me more than anything else? Because if you love me, if you keep your heart right, you can deal with all these other things. And Simon Peter aligned his heart with the heart of God. Not that he agreed with everything or understood everything, but he said, Lord, I know and I trust you. I'm going to change my perspective. I'm going to connect with your purpose. And he got back out on the field and he got back into the game. And friend, that'll make the difference in your life. There's an old hymn, they sang in my dad's church. And I love the words of it. It said, I've wandered far away from God, but now I'm coming home. The life of sin, too far I've trod. Now I'm coming home. And the course was coming home, coming home, never more to roam. Open wide, thine arms of love. Lord, I'm coming home. Some of you guys this morning, you just need to come home. Your heavenly Father loves you. He's never given up on you. Yeah, I know you're hurt. No, nah, I know you don't understand. You may not understand this side of heaven, but God can be trusted. He will not fail. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my friends here this morning, many of whom are hurting. Many watching online have gone through or they are going through experiences that just don't always make sense. The tendency is to pull the pads and leave the field and not to come back. But Father, help us to realize as long as we have time, we have purpose. And that our job is to reflect your love and to make a difference in someone else's life. And we can't do that if we're not willing to get back on the field. So Lord, bring some healing to some broken hearts. I pray you'll minister to some deep wounds today. For some, it may not be the full turn. It just may be a step in the right direction. But Lord, help them to take the step. Help our church to always be a safe church for struggling people who are trying to take steps toward you. And finally, Father, I pray for anyone in the room or anyone watching who may never have trusted you as Savior. Lord, I ask that this be the moment when they humble their heart. They say, Lord Jesus, with all that I know about me, I now trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart, forgive my sin, 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.